Take a Bible, whether it's yours or one that's on the rack in front of you, and turn to Luke chapter 2. We're going to read verses 25 to 35. This is the fourth and the last of the Christmas songs in Luke. That's what we've been doing through the month of December this year, is we've been looking at four songs that Luke records that tell us the meaning, give us insight into the meaning of, of Christmas. Now remember, if you turn back to Luke chapter 1, you'll see that the first one was Mary's song, the Magnificat. This was when Mary bursts out in song as she realizes the full implications of what is happening to her and as a result, what is coming to the, to the world. Then later in Luke chapter 1, there's Zechariah's song. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit as he too came to see the fulfillment of what God had promised in the Old Testament, coming to realization in the birth of his, of his son, John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner of the promised Messiah, who would be, would be Jesus. And then last week, we looked at the, the shortest song, perhaps the best known of the songs, even if all you've done is watch the Peanuts Christmas special. That's the, the shepherd's song, right, where they sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. So now it's time for the, for the final song, for Simeon's song. It's the last of these four poetic descriptions of, the, of Luke about the Christmas story. But it's, it's also somewhat of a, it's not only the final song of, of this series or the final song that Luke records related to the birth of, of Jesus, but it's also somewhat of a final song for, for Simeon, a, a curtain call of, of sorts for him. Let's read it along with sort of the narrative prologue and the epilogue that comes before and after it, and I'll, and I'll show you what I mean. This is God's Word. Let's listen to Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 35. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Let's ask him to bless our time studying it. God, we are thankful. Thankful for Christmas Eve. Thankful that we get to gather together and study your word. Thank you that you speak to us, that you have left record of these historical events so that we might be able to learn more about who you are, about why you came and why that matters. And so, God, we pray that as we study this this morning, you would be among us, that you would be with us, that you would be enlightening each of our hearts to see exactly what you want us to see. Lord, block out any words that I might speak that would get in the way of that. And drive home, Lord, those that you want people to hear. Speak individually to every person here, Lord, because everyone comes with different circumstances, a different filter through which they are reading and understanding what's being spoken today. And we pray, Lord, that you would be that perfect filter for them, 
interpreting and applying your word, perfect and inerrant, to their hearts and lives and situations. For we come praying in Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, this is sort of a, sort of a last song for, for Simeon, sort of a, a curtain call kind of a song. Now, I want you to think for a second, if you were writing your last song, right, what would it be? Your curtain call, right, your last verse. Right, remember, anyone remember the, the song from, that Frank Sinatra made famous? He kind of sets it up, sets up the question. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. Right? My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. Right? What's your case? What's the case that you would, that you would state if you have the, if, with the end being near? What would be, what would be that, final, that final verse? What kind of song would it, would it be? Would it be sad? Like Fontaine in the musical Les Miserables who looks back at her life and realizes all of the things that she had hoped for and how they didn't come true. How nothing had worked the way that she had hoped. She's saying, I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell that I'm living. So different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. Would it be like that? Would it be sad, filled with regret? Would it, would it, be a, would it kind of strike a more defiant tone, sort of shaking a fist in, in self-proclaimed victory, like, like Frank Sinatra? But through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all, and I stood tall, and I did it my way. Would it be like that? Or would it be more joyful, even whimsical, like when the Von Trapp children exit the father's dinner party? <laughs> Remember? I flit, I float, I fleetly flee, I fly. Right? So long, farewell, Auf Wiedersehen, good night. Remember? Now, Simeon's song here and the comments that he makes to Mary that follow it are a curtain call of, of sorts. He says to the Lord, having seen the promised Messiah, that's all I need to see, God. You've kept me around for this, and I can depart now. You can now dismiss me from the stage. But you know, his song here doesn't fit any of those categories, any of those categories we just kind of described. It acknowledges the pain and the disappointment of life, like Fantine felt, but he it, but it, it doesn't do it with despair. It acknowledges the, the ultimate victory that we have in the face of challenging circumstances, but without the self-centered arrogance of Sinatra's my way. And it's filled with hope and filled with joy, but with a greater foundation for that hope and joy than sort of the, the, the cute alliteration of the kids uh, in The Sound of Music. No, it's different. It's a different category entirely. From Simeon, we see something that includes all these things, but transcends them at the same time. And that's what we'll see. I want us to see three, three things that we see from Simeon's song here. First, we see, we see light in the darkness. We see life in the death. And we see clarity in the confusion. And the one, and, and the one leads to the next and leads to the, to the next. Light in the darkness so that we see life in the death that brings clarity in the confusion. Now, first, light in the darkness. Now, we actually don't know very much about Simeon, really. It's been historically assumed that he was old, but the Bible doesn't actually say that. And some have thought that he was a priest because that's why he would have been in the, in the temple. But again, the Bible doesn't actually tell us that either. What it does tell us is that he was a man who loved God and that God had told him that he wouldn't die until he had seen the promised Messiah, until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so he's been waiting. 
We don't know how long he's been waiting. We don't know how long he'd been wandering around Jerusalem, kind of thinking to himself, I wonder if today's the day. I wonder if now, I wonder if it's going to happen today. Right? We don't know. Did people think he was weird? Did they look at him and say, like, Simeon, he's righteous and devout. There's no doubt about that. But I don't know. He's a little strange. Every baby that walks by, he's like peeking into the carriage. Right? Did people think that? We don't know. But we do know one day, Luke tells us, the Spirit of God directs Simeon into the temple courts where he encounters a poor young couple at the temple. That's Joseph and Mary. Now, quickly, why were, jo- why were Joseph and Mary there? Right? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? How did, how'd they get to Jerusalem? Well, how they got to Jerusalem is they walked. <laughs> right? And, the, and the, the, the six miles it takes to get from Bethlehem to Jerusalem would have been significantly easier than the 80 miles or so from Nazareth to Bethlehem that they had originally traveled. Right? That's how they got there. But, but the real question is the reason. Why are they there? Why are they in Jerusalem? And the reason why they were there, it tells us, is so that they could do what the law of God required for parents to, to do. If you go back and you see, you see a reference to, to that, when it says in, in verse 27, the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. But if you go back, you see, you see even, even more before what I read. And you look at verses, you know, like at verse 22, we see there's two requirements here that are being, being met. First, the law required ceremonial purification for Mary 40 days after giving birth. Right? Now, this wasn't because there was something inherently sinful or inherently defiling about, about childbirth, but you see, ever since, ever since Adam and Eve, ever, ever since their rebellion against God in the garden, the birth of a child marked the entry into the world of another sinner, another rebel against God. And so as a reminder of that, God required the mother who would give birth to that child to undergo a rite of ceremonial purification. Now, you say, but Jesus wasn't a sinner, right? Why did his birth make Mary unclean? And you'd be right, good catch, right? But, and we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but, but, but Jesus, see, he came to identify with sinners, to stand in their place. And as a result of that, perfect obedience to the law, even for the parents of this perfect child, perfect obedience to the law would be required for him to ultimately be the perfect sacrifice that we needed to be that substitute for sinners. So that's the first reason why they were there in Jerusalem and in the temple courts. Now, secondly, God's law required that every firstborn child be presented and dedicated to the Lord. Right? The commands in Exodus 13, where God tells Moses and, the, and, and, and by extension the people of Israel that they are to consecrate to him, to God, the firstborn, firstborn animal, firstborn child, right? Consecrate, dedicate. That's why they're, that's why they're in the temple courts, and that's, why they, that's where they meet Simeon. And when Simeon sees Jesus, it says, he takes the baby into his arms and literally breaks into verse to praise God. Let's read it again, verses 29 to 32. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And here's where you see the light in the darkness. In our home, we noted with great hope and celebration the passing of the winter solstice this past week. Because you see what that means, right? Is that from now on, every day, we get more daylight. The days get longer. And I've made no secret of my relative dislike of this shorter season of the, 
of the year, this darker season of the, of the year. But there are, I recognize, those who have it significantly worse than I do. A few years ago at the Christmas concert, I talked about a town in northern Norway called Ruhan. Right? It's, a, it's a town which sits deep in a valley. And as a result, the town has never, ever in its history, ever experienced direct sunlight in winter. Never. See, the sun rises, but because, because it's surrounded by mountains for about six months, the sun never rises high enough to get above the mountains. And as a result, they live in a giant shadow. And according to the town's mayor, this lack of sunlight, it has an impact. Right? People's moods, their energy levels, all that kind of thing. And it makes it an extremely tough place to, to live. And so the people of Ruhan, they just wait. They wait, wait until spring. Now, since 1928, they had a, they've had a cable car that would enable a, a couple people, a few, to be able to take the ride up the mountain and experienced direct sunlight in the, in the middle of winter. But most of the people, they just sat in the shadow until a few years ago. In October 2013, three giant industrial-grade mirrors were installed at the top of one of the mountains, 1,500 feet above Ruhan. And their job was to reflect the light of the sun down into the valley, to bring the light of the sun into the town square, to bring the light down to the people to illuminate the shadowy darkness of winter by bringing the light down. See, that's what Simeon was singing about when he saw Jesus. Right? This, uh, this, this was the light coming down. And in doing that, he's, he's simply echoing the theme of the, of the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before. That we sing about all the time at Christmas in, in, in the Messiah. Right? The Isaiah, who told of a child born, a son given, who would be mighty God, prince of peace, and who would be a great light that would dawn on a people who had been walking in darkness and living in the shadow of death. And the, and, the, and the implications here in what Simeon's talking about, the implications are a little bit greater than just someone being a little bit sluggish, a little bit cranky because of seasonal affective disorder. Right? Because, because the valley in which we live is one that we have dug ourselves, dug by our rebellion against God. See, unlike the town of, of Ruhan, our darkness is of a spiritual kind. And it results from the fact that we have chosen to live for ourselves rather than for the God who made us. We've desired, in a sense, to be our own, <laughs> to reflect the light back on ourselves. And see, we've, we've been made, human beings have been made to be giant mirrors. That's essentially what we are, to reflect the light of God. We're image bearers. And so our, our job is to be a giant mirror that reflects back to God and to the world around us, the glory of, the glory of God. But what do we do instead with our, with our mirror? We turn it back on ourselves. Right? I'd rather see my own glory, thank you. Right? We, we, we think we can be our own light, but we can't. And predictably, whenever something is used that, in a way that's not according to its original design or its original purpose, it doesn't work. It breaks down. It fails. And, and that's why the world doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. See, we don't experience the light of God's glory, and as a result, God is just to withhold that glory from us, but we don't experience it because we've freely chosen to live in the shadow of darkness. And this isn't a light here that's being brought into that darkness. This isn't just a light for Jews like Simeon. Right? What does verse 31 and, and 32 say? Right? The coming of this baby will provide light, provide the ability for all people to, to see. Yeah, glory for God's people Israel, no doubt about it, but also a light of revelation to the Gentiles. 
There's an interesting quote in the article that I was reading about that town in, in Norway. It's from a guy who grew up in the town, and he says that when he was younger, when he was high school, in high school, he remembers it very vividly. He says, I'd be walking down the street and looking up during the day and seeing on the top of the mountain, seeing the sunshine in the blue sky and thinking, why can't I be there? And that's exactly the position through hundreds of thousands of years of the, of the Gentiles, theologically speaking, prior to this moment. Right? In the valley, with the revelation of, of, of God shining somewhere besides where they were standing. No, it's true, of course. There are examples in the, in the Old Testament of a number of people who weren't ethnically a part of the, the nation of Israel, who nonetheless sort of took the cable car trip up to the top of the, the mountain. But by and large, they were in the valley, and the, and the sunlight of God's revelation of who he was was largely shining in another place on another people until now. See, with Jesus, Simeon is reminding us that changes. The light is now coming down into the valley for the Gentiles. So that's the first point. The message of Christmas is light in the darkness. But see, light doesn't exist for its own sake. It has to illuminate something. It has to shine on something so that we can so that we can see it better. And when, when the light in the darkness shines in the darkness, what we see is that it is there to, to illuminate the message of life and the death. Right? Verse 30 says, My eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon was righteous and, and devout, it says, but he knew that when he held Jesus in his arms, his eyes were looking upon his own personal salvation. Now, salvation, of course, means what? It means rescue. And, but, but how, of course, is the, is the question. How is this baby a rescue? Now, interestingly, the words of Simeon's song, since the time of Martin Luther and the, and the Reformation, so about 500 years, since that time, they've often been sung, these words, in, in traditional, many traditional liturgies following the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which may seem a little bit strange at first when you think about it because the Lord's Supper is not about the birth of baby Jesus, the Lord's Supper is about death. Specifically, it's about the death of, of Jesus. In the Lord's Supper, we hold in our, in our hands and, and, and partake of, in a, in a very real way, in a spiritual way, but in a very real sense, the body and the blood of Jesus given and shed on the cross. But it's this sacrificial offering of Jesus, his life given for his people, Jews and Gentiles, that becomes, it's his death, that becomes his means by which the salvation is provided. Right? We get life in the death of Jesus, in the death of this baby. That's how the salvation comes. And it may, that, that mission of Jesus, that, that death that he dies in order to give us life, that, that may seem disconnected to you from the, the birth of the baby Jesus at Christmas, all this talk about Death, because that's not how our gut instinct tells us a story of sacrifice should work. For example, three years ago in November, a pregnant woman in Aurora, Colorado, was going into labor when she was told by the doctors in the hospital that she had a very rare, a very serious, very unpreventable condition. A condition that meant that her baby had to be delivered immediately with an emergency C-section or that baby would likely die. But, and here's where the horrifying part comes in, because of that same condition, if her son would, was to be born immediately by that emergency C-section, her, her organs, her body's organs, would begin to shut down and she would die. 
It's a horrifying choice. But the news report says, this is what the news says, Carissa, that was her name, Carissa didn't hesitate to make the decision and underwent the knife, knowing full well that the procedure would most likely be fatal for her. That's a sad story. But the reason why it makes news, why Women's Day runs a story on it, is because even in a culture where the unborn are regularly sacrificed for for convenience, there is something that seems right, something that seems noble about a parent dying to protect the son. The rescue from death to life happens, in this case, only because the mother dies for her son. But Simeon tells us in Luke chapter 2 that it's going to work very differently here. No doubt, again, led by the Holy Spirit, Simeon tells Mary in verse 35, that the salvation that Jesus is coming to provide is going to come with a piercing of soul. Now, Mary's soul certainly, right, in her grief that years later she would experience as she's watching her now-grown son tortured and executed. But more than that, the piercing, the very torture and the execution of Jesus on the cross, the piercing of Jesus, if you will, is the means by which our salvation comes. Literally, in this rescue from death to life, it's the son dying to save the parent. Jesus, willingly and without hesitation, will go under the knife, knowing full well that the salvation of his mother, of Simeon, of you and I, will mean, that it, it will mean death for him. It will be fatal for him. And see, ultimately, that is the hope of Christmas. Our eternal life found in the death of Jesus. That's that's the hope that we see when the light shines onto it. Right? So you see how they're connected. Point number one, the light in the darkness illuminates. Point number two, the life in the death, so that, point number three, we can have clarity in the confusion. When Simeon blessed Mary, he says, verse 34, he says, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. If there is one thing that this message of light in the darkness and life in the death does, if there's one thing, if it's properly understood that it does, is is it brings clarity to the confusion about who Jesus is. In other words, it it causes the rising and falling. (laughs) When you come to Jesus, you either rise or fall when you rightly understand who he is and and what he came to do. You're, you can't unsee what you've seen. You can't un, unhear what you've, what you've heard when you encounter the real Jesus. Your heart is revealed. Your, your true allegiance is, 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 is revealed. Look, there is much confusion about Jesus, particularly at Christmas time. In Faith Explored, when we talk about Jesus, I've often shown a, a brief little video that compiles a bunch of, of people being interviewed on camera at Christmas time in Times Square in New York City. And they're all responding to the same question, who is Jesus? And the vast majority of, of people, right, person on the street, the vast majority of people, they have an answer that could only be rightly understood as confused. Right? They say he's a guy with good morals, who had a, maybe he had some special gift. Right? There's, he's an inspiration for lots of people. He gives, he gives people a reason to live. He gives them a reason to do good. All those kinds of things. Very common views, particularly at Christmas time. Right? Most people, even those who wouldn't consider themselves to be followers of Jesus, they don't like to diss Jesus at Christmas time. 
it's just not cool, right? You just kind of lay low. You call him a good teacher. You say he's a good guy, inspiring for lots of people, and that's, that's good with me. Right? That's the person on the street kind of view. But it's not just the person on the street view. I, I, I heard Tim Keller, who's a pastor also in New York City, talk about a book that he read, a, a book review that he read in the New York Times book review a number of years ago. The book was simply called Jesus. It was written by a historian, a secular historian. Someone was trying to get to, like, you know, what's the deal with the historical phenomenon of Jesus? Why did so many people follow him? And the, and the scholar in this book is trying to make the point that Jesus' teaching was largely influenced by a, a school of Greek, philosophy, f- Greek philosophers known as the Cynics. And the cynic philosophers, was, it was a way of thinking that was basically just skeptical about, about any kind of social tradition, any kind of social obligation. They would, they would look at the way things that have to, had always been done and said, we just do it differently. Be cynical about the past. And they said, you know, that's largely, what, that's largely what Jesus did. This is what the author was claiming. That's largely what Jesus did. He came into Jewish society and Jewish culture and said, I know that's the way it's been done. Let's do it differently. So he must have been influenced by the cynics, right? That was the point of the... Now, what's interesting, though, is not... Not the philosophical speculation of the author of this, this, this book. What's interesting is that the reviewer, the guy who writes the review, rightly sees this as, as likely preposterous. And he points out that the, the cynic philosophers, they lived mainly in the large Greek cities. Right? Jewish was, Jesus was born and lived in a poor Jewish community. Right? The likelihood of them interacting in any kind of significant way is probably very small. Right, but, and this is, the, this is the point that Keller makes, even as this reviewer is debunking the central claim of the book, the reviewer still ends up kind of concluding that this is a good book, you should read this book. Right, this is what he says, this is what the reviewer says. He says, the author shows rightly that the challenge of Jesus lies in the vision of human possibilities, and faith should focus on sharing Jesus' vision rather than on holding this or that belief about Jesus' identity or his career. In other words, who Jesus was, right, what he came to do, what he actually did, they're not nearly as important as how Jesus makes people feel. Jesus was inspiring. He gave them vision, and as a result, it's good. Now, whether you're the average passerby in Times Square or you're the New York Times book review, this is a very confused view of Jesus in light of what we see, actually, in the pages of, of Scripture, because Jesus did have a career, if you will, <laughs> He had a job to do, and that job, as we just talked about, was to take the sword of judgment that rightly was due to fall on on us. But as soon as you start talking like that, as soon as you start using words like that, judgment and taking the sword and the punishment and atonement, as soon as you start talking like that, you're way out of the category of good, inspiring teacher who made people feel good about themselves. Way out of the category. You can't just stand neutral. You either rise or you fall. And that's what Simeon said. This child is destined to cause the rising and the falling of many. It's going to force a divide because some people are going to look at Jesus and and what's being talked about here, his life, his mission, and they're going to say, no way. I don't need a rescue. I'm going to do it my way. Because rightly understood, and this is is a correct understanding, rightly understood, the message of Christmas is offensive to the self-reliant. But others, those are the ones that fall. Now, others, though, are going to fall at his feet, call him Lord, and like Simeon, praise God for allowing them to see their salvation. Because the Christmas message is deeply hopeful to those who are desperate for, for rescue. 
Let me illustrate it like this. I heard a story from a speaker at a conference a number of years ago. It's been a number of years, so the details might be a little bit off, but this is how I think the story went. He told the story of a young couple who stopped late one evening at a roadside diner sort of off the beaten path. They had a young baby with them, and they were a little hesitant about going into this place because it looked a little sketchy, looked a little rough. You know, but they were hungry. There was no other place around. The baby was getting fussy, so they stopped at the diner, and they go in, and they sit down at a booth. And they're practically the only ones in the place except for this dirty, smelly, homeless man who was at the counter. And when the man spotted the baby sitting on his mother's lap, the man started smiling at the baby, started making faces, started doing little cooey sounds and, and stuff, and it made the parents very uncomfortable, very uneasy. But what made it even worse for them is that the baby seemed to be responding to this. Right? The boy, was, he was making faces back. He was smiling. He was, he was making little sounds. They were connecting. Now, the parents, they couldn't finish their meal fast enough. Right? They finally, they finished eating. They, they pay their check. They're getting up to leave. And, the, and, and, and as they are, the homeless man steps up, gets up from the, from the counter and comes over and holds out his hands and says, may I hold your baby? And the parents just freeze. They don't, know, they don't know what to do. But the man's got his hands out like this. The baby, though, doesn't freeze. <laughs> this little boy, he doesn't hesitate. He kind of leaps, leans out of his mother's arms. And before they know it, this dirty, smelly, holy, homeless man is holding this baby in his arms. And he pulls the baby close. And he closes his eyes and he smiles. He doesn't hold the baby for very long. And then he gives the baby back to the mother. And he looks at her with tears in his eyes. And he says, thank you for letting your son love me. Now listen, do you see in that both the offense and the hope of Christmas? The offense, just so that there's no confusion here, is that in this story, if you follow the metaphor, is that you and I are the dirty homeless man. In God's sight, we are the ones who are dirty and smelly and repulsive, and that is offensive. That's the offense. And that causes, in Simeon's words, the falling of many. When they receive the clarity about the necessity of Jesus' death to bring about our life, they look at that and they say, I can't believe that. I don't want to believe that. And they fall. But the hope is that in contrast to the reaction of a human parent, me included, I'm sure, The hope is that in contrast to a human parent, God the Father willingly lets his baby love us. Christmas is how the holy God of the universe sends his baby to love the smelly outcast. And it's because of this that while many fall, many are attracted to, amazed by this Jesus, and they rise. So now, let's come back to where where I started. Are you ready to sort of compose your last song? The curtain call. Simeon was. He was ready to die, right? This song that he sings, it's often referred to as the nunc dimittis, right? It's Latin. It means now dismiss. It's because in the Latin translation of this passage, those are the first two words, now dismiss, right? Which which means that, that Simeon, and we don't know how much longer he actually lived, It could have been years. It could have been a long time that he lived after this. But it means that after he had seen what he had seen, now he was ready to go. I don't need to see anymore. And he was ready. And he says to the Lord, you can dismiss me now. 
But why? Why was he ready? What made it different now? Why was it okay for Simeon to be dismissed now? It was this. He had finally met Jesus. He had held him in his arms. And having done that, he knows that this is a very different, very different Jesus. He's not confused any longer. It's not this song that he sings as a result. It's not the whimsical sound of music. I flit, I float, I fleetly flee, I fly. So long, farewell, Alvita Jane, goodbye. It's not. Simeon gets that life is hard. It's a life of swords and soul-piercing pain, and yet, yet we don't face that pain ourselves. Right? Frank Sinatra, he ends his song like this. He says, for what is a man? What has he got? Not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels, not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and I did it my way. That's not what Simeon's saying. Simeon knows that his strength is kneeling before his Lord, even when his Lord is a baby. And he knows that his salvation is this baby's willingness to take the blows for him. Have you met Jesus? Right? Not, not just heard about him, admired him from afar. Have you held the baby, metaphorically speaking, have you held him in your arms? Have you recognized that this Jesus and this Jesus alone is your only hope for salvation? That's the song of Christmas. Will it be the song that we sing? Let's pray. Our Father, our voices come to you in different tunes and different pitches, but according to a heavenly standard, we're flat, we're way out of tune, we're offensive. And Lord, that causes many to, many to be offended themselves. And yet, Lord, if we rightly understand that, we realize that only in admitting, only in recognizing our need for you do we have any hope whatsoever of experiencing the joy that Christmas offers to us. And so, God, we pray that we would experience that joy, that we would rise. As you bring the light down to us, may you bring us up as we recognize who this Jesus is, and may we sing with all of our might for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.